So there's always been a targeted attack on God's glory. From the time before humanity, there was someone levying against God's glory, and we call him Satan. He's been called Lucifer. He's been called many things. But since he was created, he was, he was built in a way that was wonderful and beautiful. And in the ways that he was created, he was created to worship God in all of his essence. And the, and the sounds that came from him in his very being, it was created to be glorious unto God. But there came a day where he felt that he was worthy of the praise. That he was not just a vessel worthy to give praise, but he was a vessel worthy of praise. And his direction of his worship, it changed and it became a part of who he was. He wanted to consume that worship. He wanted not only to consume that worship, he wanted to supplant God and take his worship. He forgot who he was. This glory that he was seeking, it turned to stealing glory from God and redirecting our gaze from our creator to anything other than Yahweh. So, so many of us, we, 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 we say to ourselves, well, I'm not in that same position. I'm not doing those same things. But that's okay because as long as Satan can keep you distracted from glorifying God, he's accomplishing his mission. Maybe you are not seeking God's worship, but maybe you are still seeking some worship for yourself, some glory for yourself. Or maybe you just kind of get so caught up in all the things of the world that you forget to even offer up worship unto God. So consumed with grief, so consumed with bitterness and conflict, so consumed with anger, you forget that God actually has a remedy for all of those things. Over the next five weeks, we'll be looking at the words of Jesus in Matthew 18 and how they direct us to live in the soon-coming community of heaven. And he doesn't just leave us in a state of hoping for that day, but he teaches us how to live in the community today. But while we live in this community, we know there's going to be struggle. There's going to be failures. There's going to be conflict. We know there's even wars. And where do these things come from? James tells us that they come from us. They come from within us, our own passions, our own desires to be able to elevate ourselves and to see our own things come to pass. Self-protection that comes at the detriment of others. So how are we to live then? How are we to live if we live in this world where there's so much conflict and so much war and, and so many pains? So much of being God's wonderful creation leads us to being self-elevating, leads us to being self-centered. But Scripture tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. This is not to say that we are not special. This is not to say that we are not made in our own, with our own particular glory. But that glory belongs to him. That glory is the design of the maker, not what is made. So even with all the extraordinary design of humanity, humbly, we hide something that we desire to be praised. We desire 
to be loved. We desire even to be exalted. And that's a part of our fallen nature that creeps up in some of the worst possible times. And I want us to look today at Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to read just the first six, uh, six verses. And it says in verse number one, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now that last part starts to overshadow the beginning part. We'll get to that in just a minute. But I want to jump back in to this first question what kind of question is that that you would ask God? You're asking Jesus, who is the greatest in heaven? Well, the obvious answer is God. He is the greatest in heaven. What would make you ask that question? Just as absurd of a question as it would be for us today, it was an absurd question for them because they knew that God is the greatest in heaven. So they weren't asking that particular question, but they were asking well, what place will we have in the kingdom of heaven since we're doing all this stuff with you? Well, we know you're great. We know you are the son of God. We know that you have all power in your hands. We know where you're sitting, uh, but where are we? I mean, because we roll with you, right? And that's a natural thing that wells up inside of our flesh when we are participating in doing great things. As you get older and you get degrees and you get accolades and you get status within the world, your question is, well, what is my legacy that I'm leaving in the world? How can I get my name on the side of a building? How can I have a hundred million followers? These are things that well up inside of us. But we know this question was loaded with pride because Jesus' response to them was to teach them about humility. Jesus has displayed and said that he is God, so they are wondering, since they are living with him now, does that mean that they'll be close to him in heaven? They want Jesus to give them something to aim for, something that makes them special, something that validates the work that they are doing. They want to know, will they have a mark in this next, this next special place? So, but Jesus starts answering this question, and he says, what does greatness actually look like in the, when they ask, what does greatness actually look like in the community? We need to be pursuing dependence instead of power. That's what greatness looks like. And one, it says, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. He put, them in the, he put them in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He just gave them the answer. Humble yourself like a child. And what's interesting here is he grabs this child as an object lesson and he moves it to the middle of them. And Jesus focuses all of his teaching on this child. I wonder if this child resisted. 
I wonder if this child said, no, I don't want to come up. I want to finish playing my video game. Or did this child just come? Did this child just move? You know, one of the things that's interesting is that they're asking this question of elevation, but Jesus, he starts talking to them about actually getting into heaven. They're asking who will be the greatest in heaven is in an assumption that they're, they're going to make it in. How often does that happen that our pride puts us in a position that we haven't even fully qualified for? Scripture tells us that it is better for you to sit at the lower place in the table and be asked to come up than to sit at the higher places of the table and be told to move down. There is a pride inside of all of us that says, well, I I want the bigger piece of chicken. Well, I I feel like I I need to sit next to so-and-so. How come I wasn't invited to the event? How come I didn't know this was going on? Who, Who are we? to say what we deserve outside of death. It's a struggle within all of us. But what's interesting is that when Jesus responds to them, he's telling them how to have a place in heaven. He's not telling them who's, who, who, and initially who's going to be the greatest in heaven. He's telling them, I want you to first have a place in heaven. And then, let me show you who actually is the greatest in heaven. So he tells them to to consider this condition. He says, if you don't become like this child, then you will never experience my kingdom. Well, what are some of the qualities of being like this child? There is a childlike humility, and it involves complete trust and vulnerability and the acceptance of your own inability to advance your own cause. Children can't do anything of themselves. My daughter keeps asking me, can she drive? And she's only 10. (laughs) Now, the reality is, could she drive? I don't know. But I would have to help her along the way. She would have to be taught. That's the place of a child. The place of a child is in complete dependence upon the parents in their life. And Jesus is saying this is how he wants us to come to him. This is how he wants us to be in the kingdom of God. He wants us to be completely dependent on him advancing us and moving us through this life. And not just in this life, this is talking about life in heaven as well. And so in that place, how are we to be? We are still supposed to be completely dependent upon him. Lord, what would you require of me? To worship you? Oh, Lord, I, don't, I, don't ha- I haven't trained this voice. I haven't warmed up my voice yet. And the Lord just says, just worship me. I'll help you along the way. I'll guide you along the way. What do you desire of us, Lord? That we be vulnerable like children. Like children. We don't like that. We don't like being vulnerable. We don't like being trusting. We are a jaded society. We are a jaded people. Instead of a childlike trust in God, we have a skeptic, we've been skeptical of his ways and his people. Now, I appreciate the whole thought of doubt stirring up an inquisitive nature inside of us so that we would find out who God is. But doubt is not a hallmark of a strong Christian. That's something that we are, you might start off there. 
It's okay to initially say to yourself, well, let me go and look. But once you have tasted and seen, he shows himself to be good. But because someone else has harmed you, don't look at the Lord and say, oh, but he might harm me as well. We're skeptical of whether God will come through. We're skeptical of whether the Lord will actually save us or that we've actually been saved. Instead of vulnerability, we've been guarded and closed off to the spiritual community. God is saying, just fling the doors wide open and let me deal with the rest. This is the same thing as it pertains to love and, and other relationships in your life. We don't want to. We, we, we don't want to be loving. We don't want to be the one who pours out. We, you you got to earn. You have to earn my respect. You have to earn my love. Is that what Jesus did for us? He says, while we were yet enemies, he still loved us. But yet we qualify love in every possible way because we don't want to be vulnerable. Why? Because we've been hurt before. We bear our souls to an emotionally vacant world and tell God, we're fine. Instead of depending on God to grow us and guide us, we seek to appear sophisticated and strong. And this is not the way of the Lord. How do we know this? Because Paul gives us this illustration in Philippians chapter 2, verse number 3 uh, through 11, and it says, Do nothing out of selfish uh, ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's so countercultural. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, if he did all these things, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, it's about his glory. That Jesus, though he had every right to command all of these things, he still submitted himself. He humbled himself. He died a death he didn't deserve to die out of humility. There's no greater picture of humility than the creator of the universe hanging on the cross for the sake of those he created. John Stott says it like this. We are the ones who rejected the position of dependence, which our createdness inevitably involves, and made a bid for independence. Worse still, we have dared to proclaim our self-dependence, our autonomy, which is to claim the position occupied by God alone. We want God's spot in our lives. We want to be self-directed. We want to say that I know what's best for me. When we go to Scripture, Scripture allows us to see that time and time again, we have not chosen the best options for us. Because time and time again, we see what is the best option for the individual. We see Moses come up against a man named Korah and his family, and Korah says, hey, I can hear from God too. You're not the special one, Moses. 
and it creates division amongst the community because Korah doesn't want to follow after who God had called to lead in that moment, Moses. And so because of Korah's rebellion, it cost his family their lives. But what does Jesus do? He lowers himself, even until the death of the cross. And in doing so, lowering himself, uh, humbling himself, he then becomes exalted above all. Exalted above everyone. This is the posture of a believer, is that you humble yourself. You live in a way that is humble before God and humble before man and allow the Lord to exalt you. Are you following his way? Are we laying down our life of independence and picking up humility? So what does greatness look like in the community of Christ? Pursue dependence on him. Pursue dependence instead of power. And second, we have to practice loving care instead of being a stumbling block to our brothers and sisters. Pursue loving care. What we see in five and six is a very stark Uh, understanding of how much love God has for each and every one of us. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. These little ones, I'm sure the child was still standing there, and so he's using him as an object lesson that these little ones, he's talking about those who have come to him in that same fashion and in that same way as a child. And so those little ones could even be the marginalized, could even be those without power, those without influence, those without money. The little ones... Speaking of object lessons, those little ones who need so much, those little ones who need to be nurtured, those little ones who need to be guided, this is who Jesus is using as who will become the greatest. This is who Jesus is saying, I want you to understand not only how to view yourself, but I want you to understand how to view each other. Because he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That those who have chosen to follow him, those who have chosen to become disciples of Christ, they are shaped in his image. Those are shaped in his likeness. Those are important to him. And they are being vulnerable. And they are being trusting. And they are allowing the Lord to guide them. And so since they have opened themselves up like this, he turns it back around and he says, now if you treat my children in a way that harms them, if you are intentionally creating stumbling blocks for them, if you are intentionally guiding them in the wrong ways, he says it is better for you to have a millstone now, I don't know about you, if you understand what a millstone is. We are outside of an agrarian context, more in an industrial and intellectual context. And so to help you to understand what a millstone looks like, a millstone generally is about two feet thick, six feet wide of stone round that is used to pummel grain. And as this stone is going around in a circle, generally pushed by some form of animal, It is grinding up 
whatever is underneath it. And Jesus says, take that, strap it around your neck, and be tossed into the sea. That's how upset I would be if you were to treat my disciples in any old way. That's how upset that I am, that you would value yourself more than your brother or your sister. That there would be no hope for you. That you would be utterly cast out. If you fall into the sea with a millstone around your neck, I don't care how strong a swimmer you are, you're not making it. This is the illustration that Jesus is trying to give. So when we consider how we are to be one with another, it's number one, as we sit with ourselves, what do we do? God, guide me. God, lead me. God, teach me as I trust you, as I'm open, as I'm vulnerable to you. Lord, just guide me in whatever way you choose to guide me. But in doing so, Lord, let me not create harm for my brother or my sister. Let me see that little child just as well. I don't know about you, but anytime I see a child, doesn't matter if that child belongs to me, is close to me, whatever it is, my first mind goes to protect the children. That's what it should be whenever we see each other. It's protect God's children. Not protect myself, he will protect me. Let me love one another. So what's Jesus' point? His point is that your life is not lived independently. As if what you do has no bearing on those in the community. Jesus is assuming that our most intimate community will be the community built on him. Where do we see that played out? We see that played out when Jesus' biological mother and brother come. And they want to take him and Jesus clarifies, who is my mother and my brother? But those who do the will of God. Sowing seeds of discord in the midst of the congregation, the body of believers. God is not about that. And in the coming weeks, we're going to actually work through how to reconcile those differences. Because as I stated in the beginning, those differences, those conflicts, they will come. But God has not left us unaware. He has taught us how to deal with those things. How different this is from our Western world that says, I don't want to rely on you. I don't want to have to be tied to you. I should be able to do whatever I want to do because I know what's best for me. But God has given us a completely different view. The context of nearly all of the New Testament letters are written from the, the stance of a deep relationship with each other in the church, and they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. They committed themselves to each other. They committed themselves to fellowship. They committed themselves to prayer. They committed themselves to being together. What does that mean? For us, nothing. For them, everything. That commitment was how they lived. You are my brother. You are my sister. And when there's no more bread in my cupboard, what do I do? I can knock on your door and say, please. And my brother and my sister shares. How do we do that today? Many of us would starve to death before we knocked on our neighbor's door. Because we don't live in a community committed to the glorification of God and the humbling of ourselves. But God calls us to be together. And he says, this is the only way that we can be together. If you exalt me, 
and if you humble yourself. Demonstrating the humility of this passage means stepping into something that might not be all that comfortable for us. Are you willing to follow where Jesus is asking you to go? Even though there's risk, even though there's pain, even though there's wounds, there's true humility. I want you to consider it like this. Jesus is asking us to come into the kingdom of heaven in a similar fashion to how he came to us. Jesus entered this world in the most humbling of ways as a child born to a poor family who would soon become immigrants in a foreign land. Jesus already showed us how to live humbly, how to step in to the world as a child. Even when your character is being attacked, when you feel alone, when you face immeasurable loss, Jesus humbled himself, even to the point of death. The first step in solving conflict in your life is being humble, being childlike, being Christ-like. Amen? I hope that as we evaluate the conflicts in our life that we can start off in that thing. Not seeking to be vindicated, not seeking to be made right, but seeking to be humble. Humble first, as our Lord humbled himself.